Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Bright This Way, the podcast that interviews the culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground and inviting you to make your own mark. On today's episode, I got to sit down with Dr. Brad Boots-Taylor, the award-winning double board certified OBGYN and perinatologist of C-Baby Practice in Atlanta. And with C-section rates skyrocketing and a higher focus on reducing maternal mortality, Dr. Boots-Taylor has been a beacon of hope for mothers and families who want a better birth experience. He gives great advice on advocating for yourself as a mother and owning your own power as someone bringing life into the world. He has been life-changing for me as he supported the birth of my second child. And Dr. Boots-Taylor just released a book called Shared Decision Making, Bring Birth Back into the Hands of Mothers. So think of anyone you know who is pregnant and make sure you send this episode over right now. Also, if you wanna have more action-based guidance more often, Subscribe to my blog, Sticky Notes, at allisonhair.com. Now let's get to my chat with Dr. Brad Boots-Taylor. I'm so excited to be sitting across from you. I cannot believe that I have you here. And I'm here with Dr. Bradford Boots-Taylor, the one and only. Dr. Boots-Taylor has been incredibly healing in my life, and I've had some really awful experience with doctors. And I've had a couple of experiences with doctors that have changed everything for me and has made me more of an advocate from a patient perspective of how do we, as people who need healthcare, find the best people and understand and advocate for our our best healthcare. So I'm so grateful that you're here today. I know your schedule is so busy. It's (laughs) taken us months to get us here. Um, so I thank you so much for being here. But well, thank you. Um, yes, please tell me about yourself. Well, one, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Miss Hare, Allison. If I can call <laughs> you that. Where do I begin? I don't know. I think being double boarded is kind of a big deal. I am double boarded. One in obstetrics and gynecology, and that second board is maternal fetal medicine. Some people call it perinatology, but it's better known as high-risk obstetrics. So I, I did have the, I guess, determination to one get through a OBGYN residency. And then I coupled that with a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine, and uh, I'm boarded in those specialties. And nobody does that. Is That's not common, is it? Well, what's not common is to take that board certification and actually support mothers through the laboring process, which as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, you understand the the science behind why certain things occur and why certain recommendations are made, and you understand the clinical application of that science, usually as a perinatologist, you end up uh, providing roadmaps and It's more advising, right. Right, an advisory role, more so than someone who's actually walking side by side with a patient and or an obstetrician. So what's unusual, actually, is to be able to to actually do the clinical support as well. So what made you want to do that? Good question. Uh, Why in God's green earth would you do that? <laughs> Why would I subject myself to having a nine to five job to now having a 24 seven obligation? Yes. It comes probably from the duration of doing this in all fairness. Somebody asked me Sunday, if I can sidetrack, when did you do your first delivery? And I told him I did my first delivery as a medical student in 1987. During that time period, the things that I now support were very commonplace back then. And it was it was based on science, but also in that era, there was a lot of, I quote unquote, I call them old timers, who did a lot of clinical obstetrics. So you had the clinical background for managing and caring for mothers. Back then, that was the norm for things such as vaginal twin deliveries, vaginal birth after cesarean, et cetera, et cetera. And so I come from that background. Uh, I added the Maternal Field of Medicine Fellowship to kind of uh, fine-tune my appreciation of it from a scientific perspective. How did I get to this point in time is after giving advice for about 15, 17 years as a consultant, I was able to partner with some midwives and had the ability to see how if you can support certain choices, you can make for more empowering birth experiences. And so it was bringing that clinical background from when I was a, a resident coupled with my maternal field of medicine background, and then now working with midwives and realizing that those options were no longer supported. And I was able to do that really seamlessly. 
Yeah. And I find that it's an interesting time now because when you are an expectant mother, you are hoping and trusting that you've got the greatest care, right? Right. right, Um, And your hope is that, and as it should be, your hope is that your birth will be uneventful. And it's coming out now where there's more of a focus on maternal health, specifically on maternal mortality, which has been, there's been a a law passed in December for HB 1318 Mm -hmm. on providing more help with that too. But the C-section rate still keeps rising and it's such an, it's such a concern. And you come from a place of supporting the mother and helping the mother and I'm curious to see how there is a sea of a rise in C-sections and more surgical births. Right. But you are positioning a choice. Right. And the way I came to you is that with my son who's six, I was pressured into his C-section. I had too much amniotic fluid. They thought I should induce right. Right. two weeks early. And there were a lot of complications with it. Right. I remember just a horrible feeling of having that choice and that power taken away from me when the doctor kept pushing and I was scared. I didn't know that I had other options and I was crying and full of drugs and Pitocin and, you know, the epidural and all of that stuff. And then being pushed into a C-section and and given maybe not all the information, I think it was purposeful Mm -hmm. now knowing what I know. Right. And my son was born, he was in the NICU for nine days. He was simply undercooked. Right. You know, they right, induced him two right, weeks early. Right. And he never latched for mm-hmm. breastfeeding. So I pumped exclusively for right. eight and a half months. Right. Wow. So we could have that. So it's just, yeah. I remember when I got pregnant the second time and I had four doctors tell me I absolutely had to have a C-section with the second one. Right with the risk of uterine rupture and that I would have to have it earlier, like 36, 37 weeks. Right. Wow. And I remember thinking, you know, I I want a different experience. And somebody told me, you need to talk to Dr. Boots Taylor. And I remember sitting down with you (laughs) (laughs) and I remember sitting down with you and you had my medical records and Mm -hmm. you said, we believe in shared decision-making here. And I'm like, what is that? Do I need a C-section or not? (laughs) You know, and you recall that (laughs) choices based on what I see before. Right. (laughs) And so you were reviewing my medical records and you said, I I see where the incisions were. I know you had a myomectomy, um, which is a removal of a fibroid. And he's like, I'm looking at it and your body can stand the trial of labor if you want. But does, do I have to have a C-section? And you're like, do you want one? And I was like, this is not how, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is yeah, not how I'm used to. Seat a little bit. Yeah. Right. But at first yeah. I thought, wait, wait a minute. Is he a quack? <laughs> right. Why isn't he telling me what to do? And I remember you saying, you know, I know it sounds hard because you're used to a doctor just telling you what to do. Right. Your body is yours. And based on what I see, the risks are low enough where if you choose to have a baby vaginally, you can. Right. And if you don't want to have that, if you want an epidural, we'll support you. If you want right. a family-centered cesarean, we'll support you. Right. If you want and a vaginal birth, we'll support you. But if something goes wrong, we're going to monitor you closely. Right. And I tell you, you need a C-section, you need one. Until then, <laughs> the choice is yours. Right. And right. it was, uh, and I ended up having... My daughter, at age 40, Uh at 41 weeks gestation, med-free, vaginally. Wisdom. (laughs) After all of those things. And I felt like I was mentally preparing myself through the whole birth. But that would have never happened without you and without your encouragement. And so, you know, I'm curious to know what is your mission? Well, uh, I'll try to address the mission question, but some of the things that you outlined allude to that. I can understand how the, your son was born and the parameters behind that. And you're right. You, as I say to mom, you shouldn't have to have a PhD in birth to figure out what's going on. With that said, it, it with your second pregnancy with your daughter, it was a matter of really, from my perspective as a perinatologist, is looking at the science behind what your choices would look like. And as you said, I, I don't necessarily encourage one 
choice over the other, but do weigh out what those uh, scenarios look like and what and what is the the, cert, the risk that may be affiliated with one or the other, especially in the light of VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean, where various bodies like the American College of OBGYN and these national organizations support attempting a vaginal birth after having one or two previous cesareans, of which you fell into that category. The myomectomy, removal of a fibroid, that's a separate issue that can be addressed by looking at the operative note. So Trudy was one of saying, well, let's look at this, the clinical picture and the science and see where you want to land with some of this. Not to say that you had to do a dare and I'm going to have a vaginal birth no matter what, but based on the information as discussed with you, as opposed to telling you that this is what you should do, that's the shared decision piece that I kind of live in automatically. I see many mothers who come not really understanding that they're having a conversation about choices and they may say, well, is he, is he serious? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it happened. It happens so often, Allison, it's interesting. It happened this, it happened Sunday, <laughs> in fact, where a mom had a beautiful birth plan, but it wasn't being listened to when she was at another practice at a different hospital. And she just felt something was uncomfortable with that, like... Why can't we have a conversation about this? And she switched practices because I think she heard that we have conversations. We talk about things. It was her first pregnancy. And there were some basic things on there about whether she should be monitored in labor or not. Can she take in some nutrition? Does she have to be induced versus not? There was minimal conversation she was getting from that particular group she was with. And we just had conversations about her preferences and she ended up uh, having a, a beautiful vaginal birth yesterday, but just wanted to see what the options look like. And she wasn't getting any of that. So having said that, to answer your question about the mission, I've really come to, I guess, recently, probably within the past year, and you may have gotten a sense of that when we saw each other in the office a little while back, that no matter how much, at least in my particular practice, no matter how much I have conversations about choices and options and science and, and obstetrics and maternity care, there are many moms or families that aren't privy to that kind of conversation. Yes. So our goal now with my current practice is to, to really develop some kind of application that allows mothers or families to really have a more balanced discussion in the time in which those discussions are occurring. And what really, does that mean? Uh, that means having some tools in, in your toolkit beyond knowing what the, in the case of VBAC, beyond knowing what the complication rates are, beyond knowing whether you should receive antibiotics or not, beyond knowing uh, whether you should come in in spontaneous labor or go or not go past a certain date. What does that look like when you truly are having a conversation with a healthcare provider? Despite that information being universally accessible to people, it still tends to be swayed by the preferences of the provider. So the most informed mother is paralyzed, uh, not only with her decision-making, but with her voice. That's exactly how I felt with my first. Yeah. Uh, absolutely correct. And so in seeing it and people having people call me all the time, long distance or not, could you please talk to my doctor? Could you please tell them that what I'm asking for is not unreasonable? Something as simple as delayed cord pulsation for 30 seconds even. I mean, very simple things are are challenged, but yet there is a lot of information on websites and various organizations and in certain forums supporting a lot of what is reasonable. So I've just come to the realization that unless the mother has the ability to to navigate a conversation with a provider, I'm talking obstetrician and or midwife, nurse practitioner, then she's really at a disadvantage with how that conversation is going to flow because it's tends to be based on what the provider's preferences are. So our goal now, my goal, is to use uh, information technology, decision-making, neural networks, artificial intelligence even, to, to, to really develop a real-time platform or, or, or mobile app, if you will, that allows the mother to really have a conversation that balances itself out based on real information versus the provider's preference. That's amazing. <laughs> I just saw this today. I don't know if you happen to see it. I imagine you didn't. You've been doing births and things right, like that. Right. Serena Williams, as you know, she's been yeah. in the news. And Mark Cuban right. have just invested $3 million in, in an upcoming startup, startup company, an app called Mommy, right. M-A-H-M-E-E. -E. Okay. 
And it's, it's an incredible platform that gives provider or gives a patient instant real-time access to providers. Right. So it's right. almost like a real-time thing. So I think they pay a subscription so it right. helps them for their first year right. and say, here's what's going on. And it's HIPAA compliant right. and it has right. all of these things. Right. But there's more... There's more. Yeah, there's more focus on on getting mothers better care right. because it's I think about this that after the baby's born right. they say it's it's like a wrapper like a candy wrapper mm-hmm. that once the candy comes out the wrapper gets thrown away right. you know right. and so having that support not only leading up to either getting pregnant if they're looking for help from fertility right. to the gestation to the birth and to postpartum it's hard to find the right care what what are some questions that patients right. can ask their providers right. that help them advocate for themselves? What are some good questions? Because, you know, like with my first doctor, I was with her. She was my OBGYN for 12 years. Right. She was a woman. Right. She delivers babies left and right, right. at Northside Hospital, right. the baby capital, right? right? You know, the baby factory. And my friends had gone to her. Right. How could I have not trusted her? Right. But it, you don't know a provider until something goes wrong mm-hmm. right. and something went wrong and I was disappointed and ended right. up leaving. Right. So how do you ask the right questions? What are the right questions to ask? Well, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a multi-pronged statement. It has a lot of things I do want to address in it. I'm going to go and I will get to the last part of that as, as well. Take your time. This is a conversation. Great, great. I want to go to the the platform of having the ability to ask your provider a question. So if you feel inhibited by that, or you feel you can't get in touch with them, or you feel that, well, maybe my symptom is, is not real, it's in my head, then you kind of own it without even letting somebody know that there's a, a problem. So when you talk about mortality rates and morbidity rates, of uh, my understanding, a lot of it is... D- the delay in actually doing something when you talk about hypertensive disease after birth or the complications associated with diabetes or hemorrhage. When you're when you are a patient, you're you may be reaching out to a mid-level nurse provider. You you may call the office and leave a message. You may say, let me wait till Monday if it's Saturday to go into the urgent care center. So I, I think what's become uh, stifling now and 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 with that an increase in morbidity is the reluctance for the patient to engage the healthcare system. They don't want to bother anybody. I may be annoying someone. Mm. Maybe I didn't have a copay I made last visit, so let me not call That's them. That's a really important point because I would feel delay. that way too. Yeah. It becomes delay, really. When you look at you know morbidities or complications after birth, these issues of hypertensive disease or in the case of Serena Williams, chest pain and shortness of breath, who's going to act on it? Should I, should I call my doctor 20 times or call my nurse once? And they get pushed to the side maybe a little bit. Oh, no, that's normal. That's regular. So on the side of the client, customer, patient, there is, I think, more of a reluctance to say, listen, I need help. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out for something. So I think that impacts mortality and morbidity rates in all fairness. And that's kind of an um, own personal intuition too, right? Right. It's like, oh, I don't want to bother anybody. So it may not say anything. Having said that, I think empowering the client, customer, patient to ask the question is where things need to be. Because there's a lot of resources out there. But is the person going to ask the question? Uh, you may not know what any of the symptoms are for having a pulmonary embolus. But you know you, you had some reflux during pregnancy. It may be the same thing, but you're not pregnant anymore. So why is your chest hurting? How about, I'm having a hard time breathing. You know, I've delivered a baby. I should have an easier time breathing. So just things that are causing you to ask a question of, is this normal, should be the tipping point. It shouldn't be you trying to figure out whether you are fully in into the throes of some kind of complicated process to say, listen, I have a question. I need to have this addressed. I'm not trying to annoy anybody, but giving her, in the case of maternity, the courage to, to raise her hand to say, listen, this something is not right here. Because when I read story after story after story of moms who were in hospitals and expired, it's usually delay of care. Mm. And that's what happened with Serena Williams too. Right. Delay of care. Judge Kira Hanson's Johnson. Daughter. Kira Johnson too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people exsanguinating over 12 hours. Mm. We, we have the, the most sophisticated healthcare system in the world, 
but now the reluctance to engage it to say, listen, there's a problem here. Let's address this. Mm. So it it, it's, it it peels back to what I'm trying to develop or implement is putting the tools in the mother's hands to to say, I have some concerns. They they may, I think they're real, but now how do we address them? Mm. And I'll and I'll probably speak a little bit more about the multi-layeredness of what that looks like. Yeah. So advocating for yourself, I think, is such a huge thing that um, I don't know that mothers know because it's pregnancy is so common, you know, in those cases that they feel just like you said, that probably nothing. I'll just wait and see if it gets worse, Right. which is kind of, wait. (laughs) You're kind of (laughs) counterintuitive because... It is kind of counterintuitive. I mean, I'll tell you something though. This program, if you can imagine, um, I'll I'll give you an example. MapQuest, Mm. Google Maps, all those navigation systems, when they first were developed and, and they first were being used... There was some hesitancy to, to follow a computer's direction to take you to a place that you were probably familiar with, but it told you to go in the opposite direction. When you did follow the directions of, say, MapQuest, and it took you to the place you needed to be, you realized, oh, I've been going the wrong way all this time. I thought it was make a left turn down here, but it really is make a right. So you then become confident in MapQuest to the point now, I think most people will just mm-hmm. say, give me the address mm-hmm. and I'll follow the directions of what this computer is telling me. Imagine that in maternity care. So here you are sitting in a provider's office. They're telling you there may be a little extra fluid around the baby. You, Your baby may be big. You have had a previous myomectomy. I think that you should have, I think you should be induced early because something may go wrong. This MapQuest-like device will say, hmm, extra fluid, previous myomectomy, 36 weeks. What does the data say about that? And then gives you some scenarios to consider. Ooh, that's so great. So it's like an interactive experience. If you are 40 years old or or you're 16 years old, if you have a a certain BMI versus not, do you have high blood pressure or not? Do you live in Atlanta or do you live in Seattle? So really taking that data, big data, and having the ability to say, well, Dr. X or midwife Y, you're suggesting I do this, but based on what the scenario is, these are four other choices. Why don't we talk about all of them, your preference and the choices that are here. But I'm now in the space having that conversation with you. Wow. So my brain is connected to my mouth. You're not intimidated by me. I'm using big data, published information, Mm. and you're using your work experience and what you're training, what you've seen and what you recommend. How do we marry this conversation so that we have shared decision-making? Wow. And That's powerful. Well, not only that, it doesn't. When's put, that coming out, Doctor? It doesn't put. Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't put the provider at risk. Who always say, "Well, I, I'm worried about litigation." Right, no, right, right. I'm sharing in this decision making, and I am choosing options that may be one of yours. In fact, wow, that's amazing. So, I want to congratulate you on okay. being voted Atlanta's top doctor <laughs> for the ninth year in a yeah, row. Thank you. Thank you. And as you know, you have a devout following of people, myself included, that you have greatly impacted my life, my daughter's life, my home life. Well, thank you. I would go out on the limb and say part of the reason I'm here behind this microphone is that having the birth like I did with you gave my voice back. Wow. Because wow. I felt like it was taken away yeah. when I had my my C-section. Right. I'm curious that you have a lot of huge fans and there are a lot of people that are critical of you as well. Right. There are right. only two doctors in Atlanta that openly support vaginal birth after cesarean as a, a practice. Right. So right. I wonder... the is crazy. It is. <laughs> but the fork... I know, like birth is so weird. <laughs> But the fork in the road where you could have gone the common path or you could have continuously gone against the grain, which is what you do, you know, and that's why people come from all over the world in some cases in other states to be under your care. What did that fork look like to you? How did you choose this? It's a hard path. You're right. It's hard to keep, to, to continue down the road. But when you look at the road you're going down, you realize that it's the right thing to actually do. The simplicity of it is that there's science to support the choices that are, that are being put before mothers and families. I just find it kind of a little ridiculous that providers aren't supporting the choices. So it, it's not difficult for me to, to look at something use science, uh, weigh out the pros and cons of that, and present that to a family or to a mother. 
So so it's simple to support. It really is. When I go down this road, yes, I, I have my critics out there, but they can't question the science. They may say, hmm, I don't think a mother should have a vaginal birth after a cesarean. But the science su- suggests otherwise. <laughs> and and you see that with various other uh, things in maternity care. I'll give you a for instance. Group beta strep is a, uh, is a bacterial culture that's done around 36 weeks of pregnancy. There is a recommendation to screen for that by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Board of OBON and the CDC. And people screen for it. Not a problem. There's also a recommendation for treating GBS in, in pregnancy to reduce the risk of an infection. But that risk is about one in a thousand. No one says not to, to screen or treat. But some mothers are choosing not to treat, even though they may have screened positive, because they understand the benefits of the other bacteria that may be helpful for their their baby. And yes, treating GBS, if there's a group B strep infection, is, is good to do, but the chances of that happening are very, very low. So mothers are making choices whether to treat or not treat. Some mothers are made to feel very, very bad about treating. I mean, about choosing the option of not treating. But when you look at the science, it says the risk of infection is less than one in a thousand. There are some benefits to the other bacteria that the antibiotics would would, uh, get rid of. And those mothers are making those choices. So I find it pretty straightforward to support what she understands based on the science and and the... uh, the responsibility she has to her her choice. Mm. And other providers find that difficult to have those conversations. Well, I think, it, you know, I'm wondering how much of it, I imagine that doctors go into the profession, not just to make money because right, they care right. about people, but there's so much incentive to be on a schedule. It's hard right. to not be on a schedule and be on call for 24 seven and right. supporting them. So I can see why it would be easy, but it's become commonplace. In 1970, the C-section rates in the U.S. were 10%. Now it's over 31%. And in Georgia, it's even higher. What's changed in in, Uh, 40 years? Well, some of the things you spoke about, the scheduling of things, there's this feeling that if you put it in a box, it's going to stay in the box. And with obstetrics, it's actually kind of the opposite. With that, trying to chaperone processes and make out and make things occur the way you want to occur, you got to start doing things to make that happen. Hence, inducing people at 39 weeks with this new ARRIVE study that came out last October. What is uh, that? What is the ARRIVE? the ARRIVE study. What does that mean? It was a study looking at the risk of increased complications with elective inductions now beginning at 39 weeks mm. versus awaiting spontaneous labor. And they were looking at C-section rates, and they felt that the C-section rate was acceptably high enough in electively inducing somebody who has unfavorable for induction at 39 weeks in a blanket fashion. So now I get calls from moms saying, please tell my, my doctor not to induce me at 39 weeks. When before it was, it was probably 41 weeks, allowing your body a chance to, to go into labor. But this new study has come out and it's been used as kind of like a battering ram to, to get moms to be induced at 39 weeks. But the quality of the induction, the type of induction, the the provider's patience in that induction will, I'm sure, play into whether those inductions will lead to vaginal births or not. So I s- suspect there's going to be a higher cesarean rate. Mm. So 10% yes in 1970, 31% across the country, and uh, and higher in some hospitals is is now. But we're going to start. We're going to see higher rates because now. The elective induction has been pushed back earlier when the body's less apt to be ready. That's wild. But I wonder if it is educating the patient a little more and empowering the patient, like you said, that if they have access to more information and they have access to more agency for themselves, for their own care, to advocate for their own care and push the providers to have a better experience. What are some things that you see? I will tell you that... If you go into a certain provider's office and you talk about balanced diet and organic this and eating quinoa and wanting to go to the gym, and some of them will will uh, marginalize you. Oh, you're talking about quote unquote natural birth, and they'll start to pull that carpet out from underneath you. You're not gaining enough weight. We need to ch- do this screen for this, and I think we need to have the baby early. It's kind of on the small side. Do you think it's like so, the panic buttons hit too early in a lot of cases? Absolutely. Yeah. And they're hit to help with the schedule. Mm. <laughs> if I have people making choices and following science, 
then there's there's going to be this kind of scattergram of of when things occur. Well, let me just induce everybody at 40 weeks. If they have a C-section, so what? <laughs> they got a healthy baby and they're alive, right? Versus, well, what was was it really necessary? Oh, there was the practices philosophy to induce everybody early. C-section or vaginal is not the is not the end game with this. It's the process. Mm. Cesareans are very helpful and necessary. Vaginal birth is wonderful, but it's the process and how those occur. You can have a, a very you know torturous induction of labor that was because the provider felt you should be induced, and have an unhealthy process and it had a vaginal birth. So what's lost in a lot of this is actually the process. Not necessarily how the how the birth occurs. Can you explain the family centered cesarean? Because sure. I didn't know what that meant until I came to you. I didn't know it existed. <laughs> right, be happy to. I just did one about an hour ago. Uh, <laughs> it's it's one where one we try to use certain language so that a mother can get a sense that she's having a birth. We use family centered in that. Wow, it's not just you yourself alone with this operating team, the OBGYN nursing staff. So family-centered, the language itself just kind of takes it out of this this realm of, I'm going to have this sterile surgical procedure. So that in and of itself is essential, I think. But the, the but the mechanics of family-centered, uh, we call it surgical birth, but family-centered cesarean, is one where we'll walk a mom to the operating room. She walks there. A Typically, a spinal anesthetic is placed. And then on the operating table, I myself will collect something called microbiome, which is the uh, the vaginal secretions from the birth canal, which has good bacteria in there, which can help the baby's gut flora after it's born. So there's an inoculation mm. that can occur in the recovery room. And there's science supporting that. There's a lot of PhD work, by the way, looking at microbiome and inoculation of the baby. So I'll collect microbiome inoculation so the mother at least knows the baby's getting some of that good bacteria. We will not restrain a mom's arms. Her hands are free. Her birth partner is sitting at the head of the table with her. He or she can take pictures. Uh, they can roll video. With the birth itself, we do delayed cord clamping, so this pulsation of the cord, and which, which kind of mimics the vaginal birth. And then after the baby is examined uh, by the pediatric team, which takes about five minutes, the baby's brought back to the mother and placed on her chest for immediate skin-to-skin. And they can do breastfeeding, latching on, Oftentimes, there's a lot of warmth and energy and hugs and holds at, at that moment. And the baby stays with, with the mother and the, and the birth partner throughout the surgery. And it's only when we transfer to the recovery room does the partner go with the baby so we can take mom uh, to the recovery room separately. It happens about maybe five minutes apart. And in the recovery room, like I mentioned earlier, I do the microbiome inoculation of the baby. And they continue with, with, their, with their bonding. And so it's a family process as opposed to having a C-section. Yeah. I remember watching you had a video explaining right. that on your website. And I remember right. crying <laughs> when I was pregnant going, oh my goodness, why didn't I have that? You know, that right. sounded so beautiful right. given the choices. Right. But I'll tell you though, yeah, the, the piece in all of that I just described, the critical piece that I get phone calls about is the skin to skin. Mm. If there's certain policies in that particular patient's hospital, they, they want the hands tied down. They don't want you collecting microbiome for what that's worth or doing certain things. The least the obstetrician could do is let the mother have the baby on her uh, skin to skin. And that's a, that's not adjusting any anesthesia policies or changing the, the dynamics of the surgery or compromising the quote unquote sterile field. It's really taking this baby that this mother has waited 10 months for and allowing her to form that bond and to begin their their journey. So out of that family centered piece, a mother should be able to ask their obstetrician, can I do skin to skin in the operating room? If we're mm -hmm. going to have a C-section, agree with it. I'm glad we're doing it. I'm glad you even scheduled it. But can I have uh, skin to skin in the operating room? Mm -hmm. And the, the simple answer should be yes. And that's where mom's voice needs to direct that provider to facilitate that, that small but significant request. That's beautiful. And I remember when I had my daughter, and as I said, it was vaginal, it was med-free. And right. after I had her, it was so different from when I had my C-section right. because I, I was tied up. And I remember I, w I remember shaking because I had so many drugs in me, right, you know, from right, yeah. all of the the birth drugs. Right. And it w I was like I had thrown up before because I was so upset <laughs> over the decision. Right, right. And I, I remember shaking and then the baby was out and they came over and said, kiss your baby. We're going right. to go clean him up. And I didn't see him for hours. Right. I didn't know exactly. where he went. 
And I think it might have been a, who knows if it was just kind of a fluke that right. it happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it was around Christmas. So I mm -hmm. think it was a lot of babies were right. being born. But conversely, with my second, my daughter Juliana came out and put her right on my chest. And I don't think they cleaned her for right. three hours. Right. Right. I don't even think the cord was cut for right. that long. And right. she just stayed there right. immediately. It was just beautiful. It was so healing. And I remember my girlfriend, Isabel Dupree, who, <laughs> as you yeah, know, yeah. had is the one who introduced me to you. And I remember when we were pregnant, we were both pregnant with our second. And I remember we're at Flywheel and it was like six in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I was really trying to think about what kind of birth I wanted. Could I have it? Am I being too risky by right. thinking of having a vaginal birth after right. so many doctors told me not to? And she had a water birth with her first and it was, you know, med-free vaginal. Right. And she said it was the most empowering thing she ever did. And it was flywheel. So it was like a spin class. Right. And I remember being so pissed off. <laughs> and I remember pedaling and pedaling and pedaling and thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm so pissed. I'm so pissed that that was taken away from me. Yeah. And yeah. the only reason I say that was taken away from me is because what I learned with my second pregnancy, I had the same complications the second time than I did with my first time, but was at a higher risk right. and was able to have this successful, beautiful right. healing birth, you know? And I remember her saying, like I said, it was the most empowering thing she did. Oh, it, yeah. It I, changed I, my life. Like there were things that I don't know that I would have right. known I could do, but felt like I could. And so for that, I'm forever grateful for you. No, well, thank you. For giving uh, me that option. But, uh, and I was trying not to get through, I was trying to get through this interview without with, crying because it is, yeah, it is a visceral yeah. experience for me, but you know, it I'm- the trajectory. It really does change the trajectory, but I'm wondering what are some good questions aside from just having that conversation? What are some good questions to ask? What are some things, some common things people come to you with maybe misconceptions of that you can help clear up? I'll, I'll answer it by saying I speak to the most well-informed, knowledgeable, passionate moms about their experiences they may have had some other place, and they get paralyzed in those conversations. So it, it almost starts with the environment you're in to have the conversation. How do we get the power back? How do we give these moms the power back? <laughs> if something is in your hand that you believe in, and it has to be a physical device that you feel it, because you've read VBAC facts, you've spoken to your friends about eating in labor, you have a cousin who's an obstetrician in California, you have knowledge at your fingertips, but in the moment, your voice cannot connect to your mouth. You're paralyzed. Why? Because you're vulnerable. Mm. There is a baby that you need to protect no matter what. So... If that provider is saying certain things, you almost can't process what you know the answer is because that's that maternal instinct that's been developed over who knows how many millennia for you to protect that baby. Against your total understanding of what it should be, you are not going to tell a provider, uh, put the brakes on that. Very few moms could do that. So that's why when you ask what questions they should ask, what references they should take, it almost has to be, here's my superpower to be able to make this a level conversation. I'm trying to have a conversation with you about the science and what I think preferences, what my preferences are. So I can tell people, I tell people what the, the questions they should ask, what they should consider, but it's hard if that provider is going to shut it down and guide you in a certain way. Mm. It's very hard. So I truly feel after all these years, because <laughs> when people talk to me, in all fairness, it's a conversation about all, all of this stuff. And they can, they can speak. They can ask questions. They walk out the door. Should I, should I try this? Let me ask him again. Let me have a separate consultation visit to make sure mm -hmm. he's saying what I heard. But I don't try to make the conversation one-sided. I really make it a dynamic so that your insecurities, your uncertainties, and ignorance could be addressed and you feel confident in, the, in what's, what's being shared. So I'll describe for you something briefly. I wrote something out maybe about seven, eight years ago called the Provider App. The provider app was 10 questions that a mother could ask their provider to see how this birth journey was going to be, the prenatal visits and even the, you know, the labor, if you will. And there were certain questions like, will the provider treat me like an adult? Will they have a conversation with me about birth options that they may not even support, but yet can have that conversation, such as you know, getting in the shower during labor 
or walking around the hallway with intermittent monitoring. Those are very low entry level, you know, labor options. So this provider app was 10 questions. They were very fundamental, but it was to give you a sense of, is this the right office for me? So thereby, if you can at least get the right provider in your app, in your stratosphere, then possibly making the choices that you want, be it things that are, are of a higher magnitude, like vaginal birth after cesarean, going over your due date, ambulating in labor, walking, eating, then you know the providers you're with are at least going to be having that conversation with you. And so, so the provider app was to screen out who was going to be in, in, in your stratosphere for this pregnancy. So at least you're not having that battle. Is that still around? I can link it in the show notes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll send, it, I'll send it to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the essentials. There are a lot of questions that moms have. Do I need a doula? Do I need a midwife? Do right. water birth? What it, you know? Right. What are the benefits? So, right. can you talk through some of those things of sure. like midwife or no midwife, doula versus no doula? Sure. Tell us about the benefits of yeah. of um of some of the questions, even glucose tests. What happens if I fail? Am I going to be have yeah. gestational diabetes? Or what are right. some ways to combat that? Or any ways, any guidance on making pregnancy easier? Of some of the benefits of things that are that sure. might be available regarding the midwife versus obstetrician versus others, if you will, it's the ability to have conversations about choices. Midwives support birth options and choices, whereas obstetricians tend to have some protocols that they are comfortable with, things they have trained in and they're comfortable with, and thereby the the philosophy, the practice kind of goes in that direction. Midwives are about supporting options. The challenge, though, for some midwives is that they may be with some providers, obstetricians, who may not be fond of those options or willing to support those. So they're a little handcuffed oftentimes. Mm. Having said that, someone to help a mom massage those choices is a doula to kind of you know, tease out from you, what, what are you thinking about? How things may look for you? Is it really uh, you know the right environment to be in? Not making medical judgments or giving medical direction, but really trying to get out from that mother uh, and family, if you will, the partners, what are they anticipating regarding this pregnancy and birth? So those three individuals, there hopefully is some I guess, alignment, if you will. But one has to be able to have conversations with the obstetrician, midwife, and or doula, and be able to find their voice and raise their hand and ask questions. They're very helpful, but when you don't have your voice and they're, they're shutting it down, literally, by making you feel guilty to ask a question, you may not want to even talk about some things anymore. You may say it's best to be quiet. Let me just get through this pregnancy and hopefully I get out at the other end intact <laughs> and, and healthy baby. So you have to say to yourself, who am I surrounding myself with? Doulas are very helpful, especially during labor. They help with labor support and helping to remind you of what things you can do to make it better. They help birth partners and families, by the way. They were big help to, <laughs> to yeah, my husband. Yeah, yeah. Highly endorsed them. As a matter of fact, at see, baby, we had a doula consortium at one point because mm. we were we were so fond of uh, of that that tool for a mom to have during the course of pregnancy and labor. Just to skip the glucose test, so I don't forget, because that's an important one. There are different ways to screen for that. Uh, about 10% of pregnancies are affected by some glucose uh, abnormalities and a glucose screening test helps discern who is at risk for that. If you have, you can either do glucose paneling, stay on your regular diet, check your, your finger sticks five times a day for about one to two weeks. If your glucose is high, you probably need to be on a diet and or do the glucose test. But the quickest way to get through that is to take a glucose test, but it could make you kind of nauseous sometimes. Some moms can't complete it, but there are cutoffs for that. But one just has to be mindful of the fact that about 10% of pregnancies are complicated by some kind of glucose metabolism, gestational diabetes. And then how do you manage that? Which means that even if you do get diagnosed with gestational diabetes, you can still have a kind of a medicated free pregnancy or you're just on a diet, you're checking your glucoses. It's when those things are hard to manage, or then you go into other things like oral hypoglycemic agents and insulin and things like that. So the entry point doesn't have to be a, a big barrier. You can just have a glucose paneling of your regular diet to see uh, to see how that looks. What about yeah. trying to make labor happen? You know, when people are <laughs> at Scalini's, I think that place closed for yeah. their eggplant farm. But yeah, you know, what are some? A, there's a Nobel Prize in there somewhere. Yeah, I can tell you what that. are some good ways to kind um, of induce labor naturally? Uh, 
I mean, I, I hear it all, I must admit. People come with a laundry list. What else can I do after these 15 things? <laughs> so it's nice, fun conversation in the, in the, in the office, I must admit. <laughs> but it really is waiting for time to go by. And what, it, what happens with maternity care is that there's so much pressure, the schedule, if you will, from family, friends, people texting you, your own kind of understanding mm-hmm. of well, maybe something mm-hmm. is going to go wrong. Maybe I should do something earlier. So there's a lot of that pressure to bear. So you look for ways to naturally induce eating pineapple and eggplant parmesan and blue cohosh and evening primrose and yoga, acupressure. But you're just walking around. Walking around if you can walk, if you're not. <laughs> the list is is long. The birth ball. Birth does ball the birth ball work? <laughs> of course it does, but it may be coincidental. Yeah. You have cervical massage, membrane sweeps. What is cervical be, massage? Where you try to dilate the cervix manually with a, with the, with a digital exam. And oh, it, it is that un- sounds gross. <laughs> it is uncomfortable. Believe me, uh, I, I remind moms, it feels like a contraction. So, so it's like, so people are doing all this. I mean, meanwhile, you just have to be mindful of the baby's well-being, which is usually through kick counts. And if you're being monitored with ultrasound, looking at fluid and blood flow, but actually waiting for time to go by. But imagine if you're moving up inductions to 39 weeks, you could potentially go to 42 weeks. So if you're 40 weeks and you're beyond a certain date, then you start trying to find things to induce and then you bring a certain level of energy to that. But truly, it really is, I, there's a little plaque in my, in my bookcase in the office. It says tincture of time on there. And I'm constantly pointing to it throughout the day to mom. What should I do? What should I? It just takes a little time. The baby is moving, you're fine, your blood pressure's fine, but you do bring all this pressure to bear. You speak about schedules from earlier in this conversation, yeah. So do nothing, I tell people, a lot. Do nothing. Yeah. What is the oldest what is the the oldest mom that you've delivered? Uh funny you asked that. There was a mom about maybe five, six months ago. She was fifty two years old. Oh my goodness. Yeah, frozen embryo. Uh her she had wow. her first baby at forty eight. <laughs> frozen embryo, also by the way. But wow. so yeah, she was fifty two. Wait, uh, it, how old is Janet Jackson? Didn't she have a baby she was 50, at fifty something? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think that was frozen embryo for her too? Uh I suspect. Yeah. I suspect. Glad she was able to get through that though. Wow. Yeah. Are you finding that uh women are coming to you older? Like, are you seeing any trends from the moms that come to you? Uh, and I say with wisdom, so we all can laugh about it. <laughs> I'm an older mom. I had my first at 38 and my second like, at 40. Yeah, you have wisdom. Yes. And that's the words coming out of my mouth so easily. And they wow, I'm glad you said that. Because everybody <laughs> says I'm, what they call it, a geriatric pregnancy. That's definitely flattering. But um, <laughs> Not at all. There is a trend for moms to be uh, a little bit older, over 35. So it's about 10, 15%. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's next, aside from the app, what's next for you? Well, I mean, that's the fun piece, to be honest, because I, I gave a conference recently. Uh, that sounds culture changing, Dr. Boots-Taylor, truly. Well, it's it's going to put uh, the customer in the driver's seat to make the people who are providing the service better. Mm. So if a lot of customers can raise their hand and speak their voice, then the provider's going to be a little bit more astute and probably adhering to the science more, more so than their preferences of what they want to see this mother's pregnancy, how they want to see it unfold. That's where a lot of my energy is going, mainly because of all of this experience I have and the things that I can support. But this is based on science, really. It's not my personal preference to do things. It's looking at what has been shown and studied and allowing a mother to be part of that conversation. Well, I could see how the AI could help too, kind of absolutely build pathways or algorithms, workflows, algorithms based on, you know, all those, those points that are going to kind of point them in a different direction. I think it's a brilliant idea. And if you're sitting in that office or in that labor suite and you're trying to answer the question that's being posed to you, like, should I induce or should I not induce? Is it your practice's preferences or is there science associated with mm. this? And if it's your practice's preferences, I can understand and respect that. Can we talk about that? If it's science, thank you. Algorithm, AI ran through that. Can we talk about that? And I'm not talking about 40-minute conversations about whether to take vitamins. It could really be two or three minutes of acknowledging something and allowing that mother to be part of the process. Mm. I love it. You would be amazed and what that will do for for a mom's uh, 
experience. I know it by experience. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, <laughs> good question. Our website, cbaby.org. See like you see something, S-E-E-B-A-B-Y.org. Where did that uh, name come from? I do ultrasound also as a perinatologist, maternal fetal medicine specialist, and I'm looking at babies all the time on ultrasound. So you're I mean, always seeing babies. Seeing babies, <laughs> but also seeing moms take it from a, a point of mystery to seeing their baby on a screen and now all is right with the world. Mm. And so they see that and they say, oh, despite all the, the the rumors and I was told the baby was too big and I was told I could never do this. And I was told once I see the baby, I realize what I can do. So it, that's where the name came from. Is it true that the weight of a baby, projected weight, is not necessarily the indicator. It's the size of the head on whether it can come down the canal. Do you understand uh, what I'm asking? I think so. Like, like as it. people will say, if you have a 10-pound baby, you know, like somebody told me, and I don't know if this is an old wives' tale, so I'll yeah. ask if it's fact or fiction, okay. but somebody told me to drink like Chick-fil-A shakes, like milkshakes, mm. at the end of the pregnancy. Okay to beef up the baby okay. because they will sleep better when they're on the outside. Wow. And that <laughs> it sounds like this <laughs> is complete to, bullshit. But, I may have um, to bring this to the office tomorrow. No. But, but it's not necessarily that you have a huge baby and that makes it more uncomfortable. It's just the size of the head is really what makes the, you know, coming down the birth canal very uncomfortable. Well, I mean, I I think that's an interesting uh, vignette, if you will, (laughs) and I'll keep it in mind. But it truly is, I mean, a lot of factors from one, the pelvis needing to be molded, tissue that hasn't been stretched, now being stretched. Uh, Just pulling your ear one good hard time, you feel how hard that, you feel how much that hurts. Mm. Imagine changing the pelvis. So the passenger does impact on that. The, the, The mother I mentioned who I had a birth with yesterday, she skewed all over the place from what was going to be an unmedicated birth to an epidural, and her baby was six pounds. Mm. So it wasn't the size of the baby. It was it, There was some things that needed to change in, uh, with her, but also her appreciation of, of what discomfort is and her tolerance for it. Mm. So I think it's interesting trying to fatten up a baby <laughs> the, the last <laughs> few, few weeks of pregnancy only to... to uh, ha- so they have, can have, sleep later. Have, have good sleep patterns. You probably hear the but, craziest stuff too. Uh, that's a good one though. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dr. Boots Taylor. I've linked his information and links to buy his book in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. If you know of anyone who is pregnant, please make sure you share this episode. It could change everything about the birth for the better. On whatever platform you are listening, please hit subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode of these perspective shifting conversations. I also hope that you'll write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read every word. As always, thank you for listening and I'll see you next week.